0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. So it's been a really busy few months here at The Mindful Dietitian. Uh, the first thing is I've got a brand new website. So the website address is exactly the same. So www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. But what you'll notice is it's had a bit of an upgrade. It looks very clear and clean. And, oh, goodness, you know, I've used that clean word. I mean, when it comes to eating, there's no way we're into that. Am I right? But when it comes to a website, there's... Um, if you can find something really easily and it looks kinda pretty, then um, it makes me very, very happy. So I just wanted to give a massive, massive big shout out to Monica Mo from Wellseek and also to the team at LR Creative that really helped me to pull my ideas together in a way that made sense. And for those of you that whose thoughts are a bit all over the place like mine are, I mean I've got some pretty broad ideas, but to have somebody to distill them and to put words to them in a way that makes sense, not only to me, but then also to you um, or other people who are members of the Mindful Dietitian community, well, that just makes me really happy. So it was an absolute thrill to work with the team at LR Creative and, and Monica to try and pull the website together. So what you'll notice on the website is much of the same kind of content as what what was on the previous website does look a lot more pretty, that's for sure but you'll also notice a fantastic events calendar there. So it's all been marked according to whether it's a, a workshop, a conference or a different kind of event there and if you want to list your event on The Mindful Dietitian then please do reach out to me either via our Facebook group or you're more than welcome to contact me Dietitian at gmail.com and we can have a little chat and just make sure that it's aligned with The Mindful Dietitian's mission, vision and values and uh, more than happy to list your event there. So what else has been happening? I've just returned from the US of A, where actually I met up with today's podcast guest. And I'll press pause at this point in time and tell you a little bit more about Nicola in just a moment. Um, But I attended the International Academy of Eating Disorders... Um, annual conference in New York City. Um, I was very, very fortunate to be able to present a pre-conference workshop there uh, with Janelle Mensinger, who you will well recognize from her research in Health at Every Size and healthcare. She is an incredibly very, uh, incredibly smart individual and a lovely person. So that was a lot of fun to do that pre-conference workshop. And um Attending the conference was also a great thrill, as we were able to connect and and reconnect also with other members of the health at every size and eating disorders community. It's always such a, a thrill to be able to catch up with people and meet in real life and enjoy some um, enjoy some meals and some um, beer. By any chance, uh, along the way, it was it was lots of fun. And um, and then I had again the privilege of hanging out with some wonderful colleagues, uh, in, both in New York City and in San Diego where I presented um, a brand new workshop called Bringing Presence to Tough Conversations. So those single-day workshops are really digging down into, you know, what constitutes a tough conversation when it comes to colleagues, when it comes to clients, when it comes to providers, family, friends, um, within our professions, and, you know, sometimes the toughest conversations we have are actually with ourselves. So we really brainstormed a lot of those ideas and came up with a, a strong skills, space, which everybody hopefully are left with in order to, you know, take back into practice um, from day to day. And certainly when we feel like we have a strong foundation, it, um, it it supports us to go into our day-to-day work with a lot more confidence as well um, and to feel a lot more grounded in the work and the messaging that we're doing from, from day to day. So that's been exciting as well. Uh, the other thing that's been happening is, of course, um, Uh, work uh, to speak out against the Fast Track trial, which is a a weight control trial uh, currently being rolled out here in Australia. So if you are looking for some more information on that, then the Facebook group Stop the Fast Track trial is an amazing resource that is being headed up by Louise Adams from Untrapped in Sydney. And, um, if you feel like putting teens on diets, very restrictive diets and intermittent fasting is all kinds of shades of wrong, then, uh, we would love to add your voice to the throng, to the choir of people who are singing wrongness all over the world so please join us in um, in raising our voices against this trial uh, for those of us who are in eating disorders we are particularly concerned as we have um, noticed you know in our current clients a history of um, dramatic dieting and certainly um, trying all, all different kinds of diets um, so for us so for our community in particular this is a, a real concern so um, if you are interested in doing some advocacy then that's one place that your your voice can be very very effective perspective. Um, All right, so please let me introduce you to today's guest. So as I mentioned, I had the great pleasure of actually almost literally wandering around a graveyard with Nicola Rinaldi. So we met in a Beautiful, uh, suburb of Boston where Nicola lives. And Nicola was very, very generous and gracious in showing me around her, her home suburb, which was stunning. It had just snowed. So uh, my little Aussie body was <laughs> very cold. I had to rug up in every single layer that I brought. And for Nicola, I think it was kind of mild, really. Um, so yeah, we wandered around in our boots and our hats and um, I had a really wonderful time. It was just such a thrill to meet Nicola. So a little bit of background, Um, so Nico has a PhD in computational biology from MIT. In other words, she is a very clever woman. So after graduating, Nico worked for a biotechnology company and also pursued her dreams of a family. And unfortunately, Nico had the experience of having um, a diagnosis of hypothalamic amenorrhea otherwise called HA. So Nico kept trying to have um a, a family and you know being the researcher that she is, she actually dove down into the research that we understand about hormones and and fertility and um and also used her own experience uh around gaining back her periods to disseminate a lot more education to the community. Um so you know um Ultimately, luckily for Nico, she was able to to achieve a natural pregnancy and since then she has shared her knowledge on the path to recovery and literally has helped thousands, I believe thousands, of other people to achieve their dreams um around starting a family. So um, Nico also has uh primary or elementary school kids. Uh so she is a very, very busy person. She's also a very, very generous person. And interestingly, um Nico has actually updated her copy of No Period Now What, uh, which is available both as an ebook or a paperback. Um, it's interesting because since Nico published the book in 2016, um, she's She's had a lot of feedback and done a lot more research, um, learned lots from others working in the HA or Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, otherwise called REDS or RED-S. Um, space. Also, people working in anti-diet, body acceptance, body positivity, health at every size spaces. Um, And Nico has been really open-hearted and open-minded about receiving some feedback about um, content of the book. And Nico did share with me that there were some things um, or some content in the original version that just didn't sit quite right. And so she was really committed to updating not only the research, but also her own learning as others generously shared their learnings um, with Nico. Um... And so the updated book has just been released. It is really, really exciting. And honestly, as somebody who works with athletes and um, also with um, female and femme athletes, um, this is absolutely number one, without doubt, the best book, both for professionals and for communities, and individuals, coaches, um, everybody involved with working with athletes um, and understanding more about hormones and fertility is absolutely fantastic. So I really recommend you get your hands on No Period Now What and that's available via the website www.noperiodnowwhat.com and you can take a look there. It's also available via Amazon. So I thoroughly recommend the book and um, I, I just really hope that you enjoy the uh, this this um, episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast as I speak with the wonderful Nicola Rinaldi. Thank you so much for being here and uh, look forward to seeing you somewhere online or in person very soon. Welcome, Nicola, to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is an absolute thrill and honor to be speaking with you today.
1: I'm so happy to be here. I really love spreading the message about hypothalamic amenorrhea and educating people on all sorts of different facets. And so I'm really excited that you're having me. Thank you
0: yeah you're welcome so you've been quite the pioneer and leader in the um, topic of hypothalamic amenorrhea which for anybody listening try saying that 10 times all in a row because it is um quite a tongue twister and maybe we could we might say it a few times but we could always say ha i guess couldn't we nicola
1: yes definitely (laughs)
0: um and also um, as well as saying it try spelling it as well both of those words gets a tiny bit tricky. Um, yeah, so, yes it does. So I'm curious, Nicola, what kind of led you in the direction of being, of really getting curious about women's hormones essentially?
1: So it was really based on my own experiences. Um, so I experienced hypothalamic amenorrhea at the end of my graduate school. I was doing a PhD in computational biology and um, I decided it was a great idea to lose weight before I wanted to try and get pregnant. And, you know, I'd read in a bunch of places it was um, uh, helpful for getting pregnant, helpful for having a good pregnancy. And so I did. I lost weight. And, um, and I didn't get my period um, for a long time after that. So a bunch of doctors and really started trying to figure out what was going on. Um, eventually, I got pregnant about 18 months later. Um, naturally, after doing, you know, I had failed injectable cycles, so we were going to do IVF, and then just in the break between, I ovulated and got pregnant. So I, you know, I felt super lucky in that way. Um, and then when I was pregnant, I ended up being put on modified bed rest because I was having a lot of early contractions. And a friend of mine introduced me to the Fertile Thoughts. Um, message board. And there was a whole long thread on hypothalamic amenorrhea. And i would really gotten very interested in it. I started doing research. And so I jumped on the board. I was like, I have all this extra time on my hands because I can't do any of the things I used to do. Um, And so I, you know, I got to know a bunch of the women and I shared my knowledge and my story. And I just really enjoyed helping people and guiding people. And, you know, people would ask me, people would ask questions on the board. And being a scientist, I would go and look things up in PubMed and read all the research articles. And so it just became a passion of mine. It was something I was doing in my spare time. You know, I was like, when, when I when my babies were young, I would be nursing and like typing on, the, typing on the message board or reading papers and all that stuff. And so it just, you know, for a long time, it was just a hobby. Um, and then I, you know, I just continued posting on the board because I got so much fulfillment from it. And eventually people on the board were like, you know so much, you should write a book. And I was like, huh. Yeah, I should. And so then I did. And, you know, I used, I, I used the, the folks on that board to, to help me share information that was really not out there at the time, which is, um, you know, nobody had really done any large-scale, large-scale studies of women with HA because, you know, most of the, the, the clinical cohorts were, you know, 10 to 25 women because, It's, while it's fairly present in sort of the fitness wellness community, it's not actually that common in the broad population. So it it was hard to find subjects for any kind of study. Um, So all the women that were on this message board were a great research tool for me. So I sent out a survey to about 500 women um, and got 300, over 300 responses, which was great. And so that allowed me to collect information about things like how long did it take to recover? what kinds of things did people do to recover, what were sort of their baseline characteristics in terms of body size and how much they were eating and how much they were exercising. Um, So it really allowed me to get a good picture of the range of people that experienced HA, which hadn't really been out there before, um, and also really what it took to recover. So there there were sort of hints in the literature about, oh, eating more, exercising less, but there wasn't sort of there weren't any hard and fast guidelines for anybody. And that, you know that's something that I really had struggled with because I'm a, I'm a planner, I'm a doer, I'm a type A personality, which I think many of us that end up with H-A-R. Um, so I needed, I wanted instructions, like tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, and so but based on that sort of group of 300 women, I was able to come up with some fairly firm guidelines about what women should be doing in order to try and recover. And so that message is, been you know been made much more public in the years since then, and so you know it's it's really great because I love you know it's such there's so many strictures that were placed on us by society in terms of you know you must be small, you must exercise all the time, you must not eat this that and the other thing, um, and so much of it is just bogus. Like it's you know there's so it's so constraining to our lives when it really doesn't need to be. And so I think one of the, one of the things I most enjoy about helping people recover is helping them realize that so many of those rules they don't actually need to follow and they can live a life that's much more free and fun and enjoyable. And, you know, there don't have to be all these rules around food and exercise. It can just be, there are things that you, you know, you eat and you move your body and you enjoy your life. And it's just, it's a much better way to live. And so I really love Sharing that message and that kind of freedom with people, so.
0: Yeah. And you do it so beautifully. You write and speak so clearly in a way that it's really, truly accessible to people. And the way that you have set up things like, uh, you know, your recovery guidelines is very, um, it's both compassionate and clear at the same time. That's what I really notice about you. It's like, I'm going to offer you this, this feedback or these suggestions. And it's from the bottom of my heart because I really deeply care for you. And it could be tricky like it could, it could, there could be some discomfort. Yeah. There could be, you know, some stuff that pops up for you and I care for you. So here we go type thing. And that's that's <laughs> one thing that comes, comes through so clearly.
1: Oh, Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's, it really is very, very well. Yeah. Very, very well set out. That's for sure. So Nicola, um, just to loop us back a little, what are some of the, um, for those people who are not Uh, kind of super aware of hypothalamic amenorrhea, how would you best describe what are some of the drivers to um, to the emergence of HA?
1: So I would say that for almost everybody, the key factor is underfueling. So not eating enough calories to support everything that your body does. And then on top of that, that can be compounded by um, exercise, uh, which plays a role both in terms of burning calories, you know, using up that energy, and also um, by raising cortisol. And cortisol is a hormone that can impact and suppress the hypothalamus. So all of the, all of the things that happen when you have hypothal- hypothalamic amenorrhea are basically causing your hypothalamus to be suppressed. So it normally secretes a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and that then gets sent to the pituitary gland, which releases follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Um, the follicle-stimulating hormone stimulates a follicle to grow in your ovaries. The egg that grows inside that follicle secretes estradiol. So there's a, there's this whole chain of hormone, this whole cascade of hormonal events that starts with the hypothalamus releasing that gonadotropin-releasing hormone. So cortisol suppresses the hypothalamus. When you're not eating enough, um, actually, so when you eat, your your stomach cre- creates hormones based on how much you've eaten. Your small intestine releases hormones um, that tell your hypothalamus what types of food you've eaten. So there are different hormones that are released based on eating fats or proteins. So all of that gets sent to your hypothalamus. And if it's not receiving enough of those signals, then it's, it, it just gets suppressed. Um, so insulin, glucose, all of those things are sensed by the hypothalamus. So when when you have a baseline of not getting enough energy, that's a, that's a big thing that suppresses the hypothalamus. Cortisol suppresses it on top of that, and that can come from um, increased cortisol when you exercise, when you do high-intensity exercise. Also, cortisol is increased when you're under psychological stress. Um, so all of those factors together kind of work to suppress the hypothalamus. Um, any one of them can do it on its own. Um, so you've probably heard of women who have lost their period for a month or two when they go through an incredibly stressful life events, like loss of a loved one, or you know, you know, all sorts of things like war. What you know, those kinds of things. Um, you hear about women losing their periods in times of famine. Um, you don't hear so much about women losing their periods just because of exercise. I think exercise kind of layers on top of the other two more than, more than they do individually. Um, so it's always a combination of those three factors. And then there's genetics are involved, obviously. We're all, we're all different genetically. So some of us are very stress resilient and some of us are not so stress resilient. Um, there's actually a really interesting study that found that women that have short luteal phases naturally, so the luteal phase is the time between when you ovulate and when you get your period. Um Women that have naturally short luteal phases are more likely to lose their periods. Um, that's actually the case for me. My natural luteal phase seems to be about ten days, and so you know, for me, it's very easy to lose my period. Um, somebody who's got a nice, robust fourteen-day luteal phase may have a, you know, may be able to under eat or exercise more or have more stress and not have their body respond in that way. Um, and then, kind of going along with that, um, a lot of women that experience HA. Have lost a significant amount of weight in the past. Um, that was something that I found really interesting about the survey that I did was that was a, that was a question that I asked. Have you ever lost you know ten or more pounds? Um, because I knew that for me that was a big factor. I had a you know I had a pretty significant weight loss in the time at the end of graduate school. Um, you know about fifteen percent of my body weight. Um, And 82% of the women who responded to my survey had likewise lost at least 10 pounds. And I was like, wow, that was actually way more than I was expecting because many of them were in small bodies to begin with. Um, and then they were, you know, obviously underfueling to a degree that they lost that much body weight. And I think that that is, you know, it's kind of a signal of underfueling, but it, you know, it's, it's something that seems to play a part, play a role in getting, in getting HA as well. Um, It's
0: fascinating that all of that was just absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for just laying it all out so in such a clear way. One question I have for you, Nicola, is um, you mentioned that um, women who lose um, weight ten or more pounds Uh at Uh any point in time now just to clarify that is what you mean that can even be in the distant past or the recent past or is that part of what you what you looked at because that's really interesting that um is it a long time ago or recently or
1: that i didn't i didn't actually ask that specific question but based on knowing the women that answered the survey i know that for some of them the weight loss was five to ten years in the past Um, so, you know, there were some women who were in much larger bodies and had lost, you know, 20 or 30% of their body weight five or 10 years ago, and then kind of maintained at the lower, at the lower body weight. Um, and then when they went off the pill, um, most of the women on the board were trying to get pregnant. They went off the birth control pill to try and get pregnant and they didn't, they weren't getting their periods. Um, so it definitely is not, it's not only recent weight loss, but I don't have, I don't have a good sense of exactly how long ago it would, it would have to be. And it might just be that because they were maintaining their weight, um, at a level that was too low for their bodies, you know, so it's, it may not be absolutely the weight loss, but just the fact that they're in a body now that's smaller than their natural set point. Um, and I think that's that's a really important thing for people to understand is that our bodies do seem to have a place where they like to be sort of for our hormones to work well. Um, And so for many women, um, you know, for for women who are in sort of small bodies to begin with, they often have to get back to sort of their starting weight or a little bit more in order to recover their periods. Even if they're fueling enough at a smaller weight, it doesn't, they don't recover their periods until they get back to their body's sort of set point. so women who were in much larger bodies and then lost weight, some of the, you know, they, they generally don't have to get all the way up to their highest weight, probably because that wasn't actually their set point either. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very individual thing, but, you know, definitely our genetics are very different. And for some women, so women all across the weight spectrum can lose their periods. I've, you know, I've seen it. It's obviously, it's more common in women in very small bodies, but it does happen across the range of body sizes. Um, and yeah, it, and it's it's about underfueling and being at a, being in a body size that's smaller than where your body naturally wants to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I it's, for for a lot of women, we um, you know, we tend to be very free with eating and exercise and what have you when we're young children and maybe into our teen years, and then society gets in the way and tells us what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to look like, and so it's sort of that free all of that messaging getting in the way, like that's probably the size that our body wants to be. And that seems to be where people are, you know, where bodies are happier in terms of, you know, hormonally, in terms of menstruating comfortably and easily.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to be said for diet culture and the way it interrupts our, you know, the, the way our bodies are, are most comfortable. And as you say, you know, our hormone profile is such a, it's a, I have read it somewhere and forgive me if this was you who said this, <laughs> um, it may well have been um, that, that um, hormone profiles in our periods are, can be seen as a vital sign.
1: Yeah. So I, I certainly do believe that. Um, I don't know if you know Lisa Hendricks and Jax. Um, so she has actually just written a book called the fifth vital sign um, and then there's also the Center for Menstrual Research and they also talk about it as the fifth vital sign. So that's that's definitely something that's sort of out there in the in the spectrum of women's hormonal research, which is that our, our menstrual cycle really should be considered a vital sign, just like our pulse and our blood pressure. And it should be checked at any doctor's visit because it can tell you so much about your health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what... What are you noticing about the way that we're kind of, that we're talking about periods now? Because certainly, um, you know, if, if I was to look back at in some of my early career assessment notes, I don't think it's something I would have asked about, maybe even with my athletes, which is kind of embarrassing to, admit really or acknowledge Um, whereas now it's something that my athletes expect me to be asking them about Mm -hmm. particularly Mm -hmm. the ones that I'm working with on an ongoing basis and I'm tracking you know tracking that kind of data Um, so is that something that you would say is an essential part of every kind of initial assessment when you're working with um, with someone who either identifies as female or um, i you know, I, I think I've shared this with you, too, Nico, that um, I have a trans male client, too, mm-hmm. who um, who we, we talk about periods.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's no reason not to talk about them because if everything's if everything's normal with some of these periods, great. You know, no further worries. But, you know, it's still probably worth checking in once a year or something like that. Um, if not everything is normal, then it's so helpful to know that from the get-go um, and, you know, in terms of what's nor- what I would even be talking about in terms of what's normal for a period, obviously getting it regularly, probably every 28 to 35 days would be expected. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe shorter, you know, 25 to 35 days. Um, finding out if the person knows if they're ovulating or not. Um, that can actually be a really key factor. Um, I think every single woman should know when she ovulates because it can be a really great marker for the health of your cycle. You know, you can get, you can have a period on a fairly regular basis and have it be what's called anovulatory, which is when you're not actually ovulating. So knowing your own personal signs for what happens when you ovulate, for many women, it's an increase in um, cervical discharge, um, it's cervical mucus. Um, you might notice what's called egg white cervical mucus, which is it, it really looks and feels like egg whites. It's very slippery. It's copious for, you know, for many women, not everybody. So knowing your own body signs for ovulation, I think is such a huge health, you know, piece of health information to, to have. Um, and then obviously when you want to get pregnant, it's great to know when you ovulate already and not have to kind of be trying to figure out, okay, I'd like to be pregnant today. And oh, when am I ovulating? How do I even learn about this? I really think it should be taught in like, Maybe late high school or college because, you know, we we have health class in middle school and, you know, nobody in middle school is ready for that kind of information and you're not going to remember it anyway. But maybe like early college, I mean, I think it would just be great to really have people think about their bodies in that way and understand what's going on. Um, So when you ovulate... How long your luteal phase is, like we, like we talked about, um, if, you know, if you are, are are not ovulating. So those are all really important parameters to know and understand. And I think it would be great if people working, like if dieticians would kind of guide people through that when they start working with them, like, Hey, are you ovulating? Do you know how to tell if you're ovulating? Why don't we like go through this and figure it out? And, you know, if everything's normal, you know, normal is sort of ovulating around cycle day 14 um, or cycle day one is the first day of your period but it can range a lot I mean you know a lot of the um, there are apps for tracking your cycle there there are a ton of them I just downloaded like 15 of them the other day because I wanted to try and figure out which ones I would recommend to people Um, a lot of them assume a 14 day luteal phase and a 28 day cycle or if they let you put your cycle if they let you input the length of your cycle they still assume a 14 day luteal phase and I'm like that is not true for everybody Uh, so again, just understanding your own personal cycle and what's normal for you, I think, is super, super helpful.
0: Um, yeah, definitely. I love the idea of bringing it into education, even in high school. You know, um, middle school, high high school, college years, because um, you know, getting to know our body is is in some ways you could you could say, well, we want to we want to stay connected with our appetite as well. We want to stay connected with any of these signals and signs, which, which gives us some indication about how we can just take care of ourselves and how we can show up in the world and get done the important shit that we want to get done, right? <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I do think you, you, you brought up a really good point too that um, periods are just being talked about way more now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, when, when I had HA, um, it was the early 2000s, 2004, 2005. And I went and looked on the internet and there was nothing. I mean, I was like the, one of the first bloggers about HA, Um, and you know, now you go and, you, you go and Google it and there's, you know, thousands of hits, which I think is fantastic. Um, so, it, you know, and then just periods in general. I mean, the movie period winning the Oscar is amazing. And, um, you know, there's uh, the period movement in the US where, um, a a woman from Harvard started a group to try and get period products to women who maybe have a hard time getting them, like women in homeless shelters or prisons, um, making them more available in schools. You know, it's just, it's fabulous that we're talking about this more because more than 50% of the people in this world experience periods regularly. So we should be talking about it. It should not be a taboo topic. I mean, you know, it's funny, like since writing my book, people like People ask me, "Oh, what do you do?" Or you know, and I'm like, "Oh, I wrote a book." And oh, what's it about? And I'm like, "Oh, it's about periods." And you know, I'll say this to anybody, and you know, so I've I've only gotten a bad response from one guy. He was like, "Oh," he's like probably in his 60s or 70s. He was like, "Oh, okay, I don't want to talk about that." But only one person. Like everyone else is super interested and you know wants to know more. And so I think it's it, it's something that so many of us know about but it's kept private and I, I really just think that being more open about it is, is fantastic and it's just you know it's it's only going to help women in general and you know all of us really because it's yeah I mean we all came from a period right or lack thereof
0: <laughs> right yeah that's exactly right yeah spot on there well spot on no spot on yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're doing well with the alliterations here <laughs> um so it's it, it, what might it be okay if I throw a few common myths at you? Does that sound okay?
1: Absolutely. I okay. love myths.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so you already busted the myth around um, HA and missing periods across the weight spectrum. And you mm-hmm. you acknowledge, you said, you know, um, many, many women are in lower um, body weights, um, but they're but across the weight spectrum. And um, I think that really speaks to the idea that, you know, maybe we might stereotype, you know, so mm-hmm. small bodies that might be missing mm-hmm. periods equals HA in a yeah. maybe a medium or larger body missing periods equals PCOS. And, you know, what you've really identified there is, uh-uh. We've got to ask some more questions. So I'm going to loop back to that after let after we bust some myths. Okay, okay. Here. Please, okay. Please. Here's my first one, Nicola. I, I get my period. I'm on the oral contraceptive pill.
1: Mm, no. <laughs> so the contraceptive pill does not give you a real period because it actually prevents you from ovulating. So you get a bleed because of the um, the let's call them medicines, that are in the artificial contraceptive pill. Um, So there's a form of estradiol or estrogen. Um, It's not the same as what we naturally produce. Um, There there are a couple of different forms. I can't remember what they're called. Uh, Maybe ethanol estradiol. Um, And then there's some form of progestin, which is chemically similar to progesterone but not identical. So those hormones do affect our bodies. Um, They do bind to the estrogen and progesterone receptors, but they don't act in the same way as our natural hormones do. Um, They actually suppress the follicle-stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone so that we are not ovulating. And so then you stop taking the pills and you take the placebo, and yes, you bleed, but it's not what I would call a real period Mm -hmm. by any social imagination. And it's actually really important to know that there are a number of negative side effects of birth control pills. Um, so uh, I'm I'm not an expert on most of them, but one of them that I do know well is the effect on bone density. So a lot of doctors will actually prescribe birth control pills to women who are not getting their periods say, oh, take these, it'll protect your bones, it'll give you a period, you'll be fine. Um, there's actually more and more research coming out that shows that Being on the pill is not nearly as good for bone density as having a natural period, Um, a natural cycle, that is, where you're getting an increase in estradiol in the middle of the cycle. Plus, there are about 20 other hormones that are involved in a natural menstrual cycle versus just the two that were given in the birth control pills. Um, So, there, there are quite a few studies that show they've looked at teenagers and women in the army and found that. While there is some increase in bone density in those that are on the pill, um, I think one study—it's a 2.5 percent increase in bone density during the space of a year in teenagers on the pill versus 12 percent increase in those not on the pill. Mm. So that's a, that's a big difference. And if you take if you're on the pill in your teenage years, at a time when you should be building up a lot of bone density, and you're not building as much as you should, that's you no, know, that's kind of important to know, and I think that that message really isn't out there much. Um, there was a recent study that was done by some um, folks at the Boston Children's Hospital, including Catherine Ackerman, um, and they looked. They compared um, hormones on the birth control pills versus hormone replacement therapy, which is bioidentical estrogen and progesterone. Um, and they actually found one big difference between the two was in expression of igf1 insulin-like growth factor one that was also suppressed by being on the birth control pill and not by the estrogen and progesterone and that actually plays quite a big role in building bone density as well so there's there's a lot of evidence that's come out in the last few years that being on the pill is not as good as being as having natural cycles um, in terms of bone density and then like I said there's you know there's quite a bit of information out there about other negative side effects um, so I really, you know, a a pill bleed is not not a period, and B while it's absolutely great if you want to use something for contraception, I think it's really important to understand the um, the pros and cons of all the different possible choices and make an informed decision as opposed to just kind of. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of doctors who just say, here, take the pill, and they kind of give it out like it's candy. And I think that there needs to be a little bit more awareness of what the possible negative side effects are, and, you know, really thinking through, is this something that I want to, you know, informed consent, basically. I mean, I, I think that we're not really given along, you know, an appropriate list of what the possible negative side effects are of the of yeah, Long answer to a short question,
0: no, so. no, no, no. that was absolutely brilliant because mm-hmm. over, I guess, over my sports dietetic career, I have noticed a real shift away from um, the pill specifically being used to, as you say, quote unquote, protect bones. Early in my career, yes, I would have said mm-hmm. I would have heard that, that exact mm-hmm. phrase actually quite commonly. And now um, a lot of the sports physicians that I'm working with and GPs are yeah. now starting to not not starting to, but they're speaking very openly. i'm noticing they're speaking publicly about um that that contraception contraceptive contraceptives for contraceptive use mm-hmm. and let's take a look at um, other ways that we can yeah. um, either yeah. protect bones, build bones, um, optimize density you know optimize nutritional quality you know. Yeah. Etc., cetera,
1: etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really important to not use the pill as a band aid. Right. Rather, further investigate and understand what the underlying causes are of whatever problem it is that you're trying to address by giving somebody the pill. You know, heavy periods, um, you know, missing periods, irregular periods. Like, let's look at the root cause of that rather than just giving out the pill and saying you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, completely agree. Completely agree. So, my second myth slash question slash inquiry is about, um, just say you're working with, say, a younger adult athlete, so maybe late teenager, early 20s or so, and they're like, yeah, well, I, I mean, my period's irregular, it's not even here, but it's not as if I want to have kids anytime soon. Sorry, so, what would you say to that?
1: <laughs> I think to some degree we've already addressed that. Um, there are so many things that the hormones associated with your periods do besides just let you get pregnant. I mean, obviously that's the driving biological reason why we menstruate. Um, but, as I said, there are about 20 different hormones that are involved. So, when you're not getting your period or it's very irregular, those hormones are at a baseline level for most of the time and as opposed to in a regular menstrual cycle where they're all kind of going up and down and you know there's there are fairly significant changes in the amounts of those hormones that we are exposed to during menstrual cycle. Um, so things things that you might experience if you have a missing period due to HA are you might be cold all the time you obviously we've just been talking about bone density that's a huge one um, and I think it's I think it's really important for people to understand the long-term impacts of that, Um, you know, as a young person, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, bone density, who cares? Like, you know, that's not, that doesn't matter to me. I mean, you know, but when you get to your 60s, 70s, 80s, um, my co-author Lisa's mom has osteoporosis and she has broken bones just by like leaning over from a chair and putting her hand down. she broke a bone by stepping off a curb. You know, that is a huge problem and if you can do something in your 20 in your teens or 20s or 30s to avoid that like oh my god please 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 like your future self will kick you in the butt if you don't you know if especially once you know that this is this could be a problem in the future like you do everything you can to get that period back because like we were just talking about the the artificial hormones are not having the I mean, not having anything is even worse that um for women who are not getting a period and, and are not on either the birth control pill or hormone replacement therapy, they lose about 2.5% bone density per year. Um, again, at a time, if you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, when you should be building bone density, that is going to have a long-term impact and really, really important to, to address it as soon as possible. Um, and you can build that bone back. So I've, I've seen a number of serial bone density measures of women that have experienced HA and recovered. And um, I think almost uniformly there has been increases in bone density after recovery of their periods. So it's not, you know, maybe you won't get to a point that you would have had this never happen, but certainly it is, you can reverse the course of, you know, bone loss or what have you. So that's, that's a huge one. Um, then your hormones are also... You also affect your your hair and nails. Those are much more brittle when you're not getting enough energy to support growth. Um, there can be digestive issues. Um, a lot of women, um, you know, will start they'll start trying to eat more, and they, they where they've developed IBS, um, you know, various other sort of symptom digestive symptoms. And I think, you know, obviously not all of it, but some of it comes from Restricting food, restricting energy—that means your body then can't produce the hormones that, it, or the the enzymes that it needs to digest foods. So some foods become more di- more difficult to digest. So you restrict those, and it's basically this this slippery slope that you fall down. Um, so that can that can also be you know have an impact. And um, so it can be constipation or diarrhea, um, perhaps immunological um, deficits in terms of getting sick more easily. Um, Anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff should really read about relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, it's a new term that was coined, I think, three or four years ago. Um, and there's some great papers that really describe the range of symptoms that can be involved, and um, in men and women. I think it's really important for people to know that this can happen in men too. It's just not as obvious because men don't get periods, so they they don't have this obvious sign that something's wrong. But certainly, um, you know, they can experience many of the same. Um, You know they can also experience the bone density loss and many of the other symptoms as well. So,
0: yeah, thank you for making that um, that reference to relative energy deficiency in sport because it's a really nice way that we can understand um, the the way a lot of these symptoms all fit together as well. And the and the great thing about the work that you have done in HA and the work that a lot of other people have done in Red S is that there's now guidelines, which is fantastic. Yeah. There's a guidelines for okay, where to from here, which I think yeah. for for um for athletes, for individuals, for coaches, um, for organizations, I think it provides a really powerful rationale for how we can best take care of ourselves, our athletes, mm-hmm. our loved ones, um, each other as
1: well. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, something else that I want, that came up while you were talking about that is relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, a lot of people think that HA, loss of period, only happens in sort of top-level athletes. And that's another place where it happens all across the spectrum. So that was another part of the survey that I did, um, was I asked women, how much exercise are you doing? You know, how, much, how many times per week? How much time per session? And there were, um, I think 330 respondents to that question. There were nine women who didn't exercise at all. Um, so that's sort of the, the bottom end of the spectrum. And then it went up to, you know, most, the, the median was exercising, I think, five or six days a week and for an hour at a time. Um, and then there were people who were exercising two hours a day, seven days a week. So again, it goes all across the spectrum of exercise habits. So it's not, this is not just something that's experienced by, top-level athletes. So when you say relative energy deficiency in sports, sport can be anything. Sport can be mm-hmm. you know, getting on the elliptical a couple times a week. I mean, it's like it's, it's a big, big range again. Big in that spectrum, yeah. yeah. So what we've been
0: able to do today, Nicola, is really drill down on some of the reasons why people might not self-identify. Mm-hmm. You know maybe people might say oh i've only lost a little weight or but i'm not thin or i don't do that much exercise or they might exercise a bit but i'm not it's not as if i'm any good at it you know excited um so and, and this is part of why it's so important for us as health professionals to be able to um, support people to take their symptoms really seriously, yes. um, and I, well, I wonder if your experience has been similar to mine in the sense that you know some some of the uh, people that I see that present with HA have actually been to a number of other health professionals who have not taken it seriously at all, uh, oh, or, or who, ha- who have just said, "Oh, you're an athlete. What do you expect?" Or, or "You're right. you're training for a half marathon. What do you expect?" Type thing. And uh, has that been similar to your experience?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's there are many, many women who have gone to see doctors or any other types of health health professionals and been told, "Oh, it, you know, it does. It doesn't really matter. You know, take the birth control pills. Come back and see me when you want to get pregnant." Um, or you you don't exercise that much, or um, you're not. You know, you're not that. You're not that thin. Your eating's fine. I mean, it, there's. I think really understanding that this. I think for health professionals to understand that this happens across all ranges of eating, exercise, body size, I think is really, really important. Um, I think any time a woman is missing her period, it's important to understand why and and try and figure out if you can get that period to come back
0: yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more yeah so the more we can talk about it the more we can spread the good word i suppose (laughs) so my next question for you nicola is around you know you have had contact with literally thousands probably tens of thousands of people all over the world through your facebook group um so i'll put a link to that in the in the notes um and of course link to all your your website your book and and everything um that you um produce so so my question is, after having had contact, either personal contact or kind of through social media, et cetera, what do you notice are some of the main, um, I suppose, barriers that people find or the, or the things that people just find really hard about the process of recovering their period?
1: So there are a couple of things I would say. One of them is kind of turning our societal ideals upside down because we are taught from such a young age that being small is better and being large is not good. And so that drives so much of what women do because they're constantly trying to meet those societal ideals because there's privilege associated with it. Um, So it's really hard to make that mental shift of believing that you are valuable and worthy even if you're in a larger body, whatever size that may be. Um, and I think that, that that mental change is one of the hardest things to do. I mean, I think women often really struggle with the idea of getting bigger when they've worked so hard for so many years to be the size that they are. Um, so that that's huge. And I think really Some of the things that can help are surrounding yourself with positive, you know, with with real body positive accounts on social media, and um, you know, getting rid of all the wellness, fitness, like teeny tiny people who post that they eat like this minuscule salad and that's supposed to fuel them for the entire day. Um, You know, getting rid of all of that kind of stuff can really help, and following people who are who are in larger bodies and who are happy and fulfilled and doing amazing work. Um, you know, I think that that can, that can really, really help. Um, the second thing is exercise. So for many women, it's, they're okay with eating more, but cutting out high-intensity exercise, which is what I typically recommend for recovery, that's really hard because a lot of, a lot of people use exercise as a form of stress relief. Um, and it's it's really interesting because exercise does increase our endorphins, so it feels good, but those endorphins at the same time also suppress the hypothalamus. So the very thing that's making you feel good is actually then preventing you from recovering your menstrual cycle. Um, so I think, um, yeah, cutting out the exercise, finding other ways to relieve that stress. Um, you know, for me, I find now, like, my... Ice hockey is my thing. I love playing ice hockey. And um, when I had HA, I was playing ice hockey and squash and volleyball and lifting weights and biking and playing golf on the weekends. I mean, I was just exercising every day, you know, hours a day. I loved it. Um, And then I cut my calories and that was just the worst thing I could possibly have done. Um, But I find now that just getting outside and walking, being outside in nature, you know, especially going with a friend, like that's so enjoyable. And It is exercise. It is movement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, my blood is pumping. My heart, you know, my lungs are working, but it's not, it's not affecting my hypothalamus in the same way that that high intensity exercise does. So finding other ways to relieve the stress, it can be movement. It can be, um, you know, picking up new hobbies or, you know, taking classes, um, learning new things, um, volunteering. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that people can do, but it's, it's a hard, barrier to break when you when you're used to spending a couple hours a day exercising and your friends are all at the gym and it's kind of the life that you've gotten yourself involved in like backing away from all of that can be mm. really, really challenging.
0: Hmm, and, and like you say, finding a new sense of community. So for a lot of people who do um, exercise in a group or in a gym-based setting or, you know, do F45 or, you know, those kind of things. that yeah. of course, you know, and uh, it, th- there is a community associated with that. And so uh, what you're really describing there is, you know, there's loss of one community, but then um, finding community in in other ways so that you're yeah. still maintaining that sense of connectedness with other people.
1: Yes, and sometimes more, you know, sometimes you actually end up getting a lot more connected because you're spending all that time on the elliptical or the stair trainer or rowing or, you know, doing 47,000 pull-ups or whatever it is.
0: <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of um giving you opportunities to to also get a sense of connectedness in a different way as well. Mm-hmm. Um so rather than have a shared I don't know a shared experience around lifting weights or something, which I'm not minimising. You know, for some people that is extremely enjoyable and is you know it's a, it's a fantastic way to connect with ourselves, our bodies, and other people. So I'm not being critical about that, but just sure. that um, you know there when we can broaden
1: um, our suite of yeah. skills. That's a great way of looking at it. Mm, yeah. um, and I think the other important thing for people to know and to understand is that. Um, well, you always need to eat enough to properly fuel your body. That's an always thing. Um, cutting out the high-intensity exercise is not is not forever. So that's something that you do in order to regain and restore your period. Um, I recommend waiting for three cycles before adding back high-intensity exercise because I just have seen too many women get that first period, be like, "Yay, I'm recovered! Let's go run a marathon!" And I mean, it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be a marathon, but You know just jump right back into the high intensity exercise and then the second period is nowhere to be seen. So I like people to kind of have a more established um you know hormonal cycle so the three periods allows that. It also lets you figure out when you ovulate and how long your luteal phase is and so then you can monitor that going forward to see like okay if I add in half an hour of exercise twice a week what does that do to my cycle? Uh, you know, if it's having a negative impact, maybe you maintain that for a couple more months and then you can add in more. Um, but in the longer term, I have I've I've worked with women who are now back to running marathons, um, doing triathlons. Um, I worked with an Olympic rower who, um, you know, went back to training for the Olympics a few months after recovering her period and continued. All of these people are continuing to menstruate the whole time. They're doing this mm-hmm. additional high intensity training, but now they're fueling their workouts appropriately. Um, and maybe they're not as light as they were you know, mm-hmm. previously. Um, but, you know, the, the one, one story I love is um, a, a woman, Jen, whose PR in the marathon was three hours, 30 minutes when she was, um, you know, when she had HA, and then she gained weight, got pregnant, had two kids, um, and now her PR is 303. Oh, wow, so that's, that's a pretty big jump and she's in a larger body. So, the, you know, the whole idea that you have to be small in order to be good at sport XYZ, you know, it's, I think it's so much more important to actually be fueling your body appropriately and fueling your exercise.
0: Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely um so thank you so much for for um diving down onto those onto those two main barriers because i think that's for for dietitians and health professionals that are listening i think those are the things that often people will ask is that is mm-hmm. um, you know one of the things that, that i hear quite regularly is i definitely want to get my period back but i don't want to gain weight and so mm-hmm. I really thank you for offering us um some way to to navigate that because it's kind of a tricky conversation you you know you're kind of trying to hold that hold that compassion for somebody's experience and their potential fears and um you know very personal experiences are going on around around uh, potentially what what could happen and change and all, the,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all those kind of things, whilst at the same time wanting to stay really grounded and centred in um, not only evidence-based practice, but then also in ethical care as well. So having guidelines like you so clearly laid out is just so helpful for us in being able to say, I hear you and, yeah, I can yeah. really understand that that might be tough. And and X, Y, Z is you know actually what, we, what we're going to need to be looking at doing.
1: Yeah. Mm. yeah
0: it's it's tricky isn't it? It's tricky it's but it's,
1: it's so challenging and I think another another thing that can be really challenging for people is that um, for a fair number of people when they start to eat more they feel physical discomfort yes. um, that can be bloating it can be water retention um, and that is also really, really hard to deal with um you know it, it's they they can um Bodies can get bigger in awkward ways as well. Um, so I think just, you know, all of that is temporary and it does go away with time. Um, it's just, it, it can be really difficult to deal with in the moment. So I think in, in terms of those, sometimes, you know, obviously every, every person that you're working with is different. Some people can just jump right to the recommended approximately 2,500 calories, For other people it might be that you need to work up to that level more slowly and maybe you introduce you reintroduce you know if there's been a lot of food group restriction like restricting dairy and gluten and you know basically only eating fruits and vegetables um you know maybe adding some of those things back one by one as opposed to just being like okay now you got to eat everything because it, it can be difficult for some people to digest certain foods um And another thing on that topic of different food groups is um, I generally recommend eating everything. Um, You know, I feel like there's a lot of fear mongering around nutrition and obviously you as a dietitian, as as a professional dietitian can speak to this better than I can, but I feel like there's so much black and white thinking around nutrition where our bodies actually operate in shades of gray. So I feel like there are very few foods where, um, you know, if you eat them, you're going to die immediately. I mean, really, I don't think there are any. Um, you know, it's sort of more, we're looking more like poisons there. Right, but right. We're, we're sort of told like sugar is the devil. And if you eat sugar, you're going to get diabetes and you're going to have a heart attack and you're mm. going to have a stroke. And well, no, not really. I mean, like you can probably eat some sugar and you'll be fine. Um, you know, I feel like if you ate only sugar all day, every day, then yeah, you'd probably be pretty unhealthy. But, by the same token, if you ate only carrots all day, every day, you'd probably be pretty unhealthy. So I think there has to be. Well, you'd like, be orange and unhealthy. You would be orange. <laughs> 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 um, but I think just like encouraging balance and moderation and really um, trying to decrease the fear mongering around foods because I think that that is really detrimental to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, think just i don't see why we need to be afraid of eating mm-hmm. and i think if we can just eat and you know maybe eat more of these types of foods and a little bit less of these other types of foods but if you eat a piece of cake you know it's it's okay and it can be enjoyable and it you know that can be good for you in some ways and so i think just encouraging moderation and balance and Mm-hmm.
0: It's actually really, really interesting because looping back to what you said at the start about, um, you know, maybe people who are a little bit more vulnerable to getting HA, um, you know, it's it's not lost on me, you know, the parallel between what you're talking about with, you know, black and white thinking and that being attributed to food and also mm-hmm. us just existing a diet culture, which is co- just consistently throwing new things at us that are apparently – going to cause xyz and yeah. going to lead to imminent death and so you know all of this is it feels like a puzzle in lots of ways and what i really like about this is is that we you know we we, we mustn't kind of jump to the conclusion that every person who gets ha definitely has an eating disorder because that's not the case um certainly some people would also have um experiences um, and to be currently experiencing a clinical eating disorder, but others don't. And what I really like about talking about this in terms of recovering a vital sign is that in and of itself, it's so healing it's so healing to to be looking at things like more flexibility and 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 looking at a broader suite of coping skills and more connectedness and all those things because those are exactly the same um skills and tools as we would be talking about with eating disorder recovery as well it's exactly the same so um it's moving away from the black and white and i love what you said about you know it's shades of grey and, and just, uh, you know, um, understanding that there are a lot of us that don't love grey, or well, we love mm-hmm. a certain type of grey, but not yeah. other types <laughs> of grey, you know?
1: Yes. And I, I think certainly women that have HA tend to be, as, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, we tend to be rule followers. So you give me a rule, and I will follow it to a T. And so, you know, having a little bit, definitely being more flexible is is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's but, so, so it's Another 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 point that I think I kind of strayed away from is, um, you know, I like people to just eat all the foods, but obviously there are people who are allergic to different types of foods. They don't need to eat things they're allergic to. I mean, there's a there's a lot of flexibility in recovery as well, and recovery can look different for different people. So, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all way of getting HA, and there's not a one-size-fits-all way of getting out of HA. So I think um, really having a recovery protocol that's tailored to your personal situation can be really helpful
0: yeah absolutely so with that in mind if um if someone listening either personally or has a friend what what's the what's the process of if somebody recognizes that they haven't had their period for a certain length of time maybe three four five six months or longer um what 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 is your recommendation about who is the first person who they should really be going to see
1: so I do think it's important to go and see a physician because there are a number of things that can cause missing periods, not just HA or PCOS. Um, so there, there are other things that should be ruled out. So there's Asherman syndrome, which is scarring in the uterus um, or or vagina that can cause, that can prevent somebody from bleeding. Um, that seems to happen mostly after some kind of uterine trauma. So it can be after a c-section or a DNC or um, you know, some, uh, maybe, um, you know, other ways, but th- that's something that can happen. Um, there are some medications that can cause amenorrhea, um, some psychotropics, some um, epilepsy drugs. Um, there are, um, there's obviously HA, PCOS. I feel like there's another big one that I forget that I'm, that I'm missing. Um, oh, ha- um, uh, pituitary microadenoma, which is a very small growth in the pituitary gland that causes the pituitary pituitary pituitary. Use excess prolactin, um, which is the hormone that we produce when we're breastfeeding, so that can cause, um, that suppresses the FSH, the follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, so that should also be checked. Um, there's congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which has um, an elevated level of 17 hydroxyprogesterone. That can be another thing that presents very similar, similarly to PCOS and can cause amenorrhea. So a doctor should be going in and looking at all the, the sort of menu of possibilities for why somebody's missing her period, and sort of crossing them off one by one. Okay, it's not Escherman syndrome. You know, you, you should probably be having an ultrasound to look at um, your uterus and vagina and ovaries. Um, there's no hyperlactin, so it's not a it's not a microadenoma. Um, you know, there's you no know, elevated androgens, so it's probably not PCOS. Um, you are you eat you quote unquote eat well you're you know you're exercising a fair bit let's look at h a as a possibility um, so I think it's if it, h a is a diagnosis of exclusion um, as is p c o s which is kind of tough, but I think um it's important not to be diagnosing PCOS in somebody in the absence of um, elevated androgens if they have sort of lifestyle factors that would lead to, uh, you know, to a possible HA diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. That, that- PCOS, sorry, HA does seem to trump PCOS, so in somebody that somebody can have both conditions, but they will be hormonally suppressed from the HA, and then once they recover from that, the PCOS can then manifest. Um, ah, right. A number of people, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: yeah, I didn't know that. Right, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. So, um, for any any health professionals listening, then a referral to a physician who can do a really, really thorough workup would be um, be the, the kind of first port of call before we're launching in, into any discussion. So maybe our job is to really to gather um, some data and to gather mm-hmm. a bit of a history and do all that stuff and maybe to address any kind of concerns or worries that um that your client um, presents to you and then maybe to facilitate that referral to somebody who can do a a more in-depth medical workup.
1: yeah um i think it is also important to know that many doctors will not give the diagnosis of ha they might come back with oh it's probably pcos or they might just say it's unexplained um so it's good to rule out those, you know, those other possibilities. Um, but if, you know, if the, if the medical doctor doesn't necessarily say HA, that doesn't mean that that's not what it is. Right. Um, I think if the other things are ruled out and you have somebody who's, you know, and been probably been under fueling and exercising a reasonable amount, maybe, you know, stressed and the stress can actually come in the form of like calorie counting and macro counting and all of that, because, you know, the wearing a Fitbit every day, weighing yourself every day, like all of those pieces of information floating around in our head 24-7, that's, that's actually stressful. So um, definitely as part of recovery, I encourage women to like throw all of that away. Um, you know, maybe, maybe count calories for the first few days of recovery just to be like, okay, this is what 2,500 calories looks like for me. But then stop and stop, you know, stop tracking calories. Take off that Fitbit because, you know, there's often a compulsion to get to the 10,000 steps or whatever then, whatever the number is for you. And, um, not getting there can be stressful and can be like, Oh, but I should be doing more, but I'm not doing more. And, uh, um, mm-hmm. just getting, getting rid of all of that. And I'm sure you guys know that weighing is like this. There's, there's nothing, nothing good that comes out of getting on a scale. It's just.
0: You
1: know, absolutely. In you all the day, all day. Those things are evil, evil machines. <laughs>
0: yeah, they are, unless there's a medical, something medical yeah. where we, where we absolutely need to, you know, do an anesthetic dose.
1: Well, or... like if you have a drug that's dosed based on weight, right. yes, how so much you weigh. But other than that, I mean, you really don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's lots of other things within our inside of us that can give us the signs of if things are on track, right? Yeah. 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 Um, Nicola, you, you are just such a hive of information and wisdom, and it's all wrapped up in this just beautiful and generous package. And I just really wanted to, from the bottom of my heart, really thank you for the time that you've given to us today. Um, mm-hmm. You are, yeah, as I said, you're just so so generous. And I encourage um, everybody to go and read um, by Nicola's book. And so I will put um, all the links directly to um, No Period Now Wash website um, and to Nicola's work as well um, and the research that you've been involved in and all kinds of things. Goodness me, you know, I could just you know, talk, <laughs> talk about you forever. So is, is No Period Now What your website, is that the best way that people can just find out everything about you and your services and your products and everything, anything else that you'd like people to know?
1: Um, yeah, and I, I think that the website is a great starting place. And then I do have um, Facebook support groups, um, both for just general HA recovery support and for getting pregnant. Um, the one for getting pregnant, I do require um, that somebody has my book because there's um, there's an entire section in the book that is all about um, sort of monitoring your natural cycles, um, oral medications that can be used to help somebody ovulate if they haven't gotten their period back. Um, injectables, IVF, and you know, so it answers a ton of questions in there, sort of really specific to women with HA because many um, reproductive endocrinologists don't see a lot of women with HA. Um, I, I'm uh, personal friends with a doctor here in Boston, and he said that he sees one to two HA patients a year. This is at one of the top clinics in Boston. So there's there's some vagaries about HA and um, treating it you know in when somebody is trying to get pregnant so that not you know a lot of doctors don't know about, so I include all of that information in that in that section of the book so um I feel like that's that's pretty specialized so rather than giving you know rather than giving people the same answers over and over again, I'm like just read the book just and then read that you know, chapter
0: it's, absolutely it's, 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 um, yeah and also um, and, I'll, and I'll certainly say that um um, as a health professional, I'm in one of your groups, like one of your um, support groups, and um, I don't participate at all. But goodness, it has been an incredible education for me to see what how women are presenting and describing, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the the support that other people are giving, and then the way you are so the way you kind of um, involve yourself in some of those discussions, and then I notice that you leave some sc- discussions right alone because your group's got it, like they they're taking care yeah. of each other, you know. It's,
1: it's lovely because. It is. So many women have read my book and so they, they know what they're talking about now, Exactly. Which is, you know, they, they share the advice and it's like, yeah, you got that. That's you great. got
0: that. I don't need to get in there. No, it's, it's really wonderful. And so I, I really recommend other health professionals just go and just um, see what people are asking and mm-hmm. then notice. So you and your team as well, when you jump in there and um, and offer some feedback or some suggestions or something that is, that is incredibly valuable for us to be able mm-hmm. to see like there's no other space that you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. Cool. Um, Nico, again, thank you so, so much for being here today. I have loved today's discussion so, so much. Um, as you know, as usual, when we talk, we could just talk for hours and hours and hours, and hours and hours, (laughs) but I I look forward to continuing this discussion another time and yeah, that would be really great to stay connected. And, um, yeah, I'm wishing you all the best and thank you again.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, I've really enjoyed this conversation as well because it's kind of a different angle from many of the other podcasts that I've been on. So it's been, it's been really great for me too. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Nico. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.